Chapter Seven of Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume Two, by Havelock Ellis. Chapter Seven. Conclusions, Part One. Having now completed the psychological analysis of the sexual invert so far as I have been able to study him, it only remains to speak briefly of the attitude of society and the law. First, however, a few words as to the medical and hygienic aspects of inversion. The preliminary question of the prevention of homosexuality is in too vague a position at present to be profitably discussed. So far as the really congenital invert is concerned, prevention can have but small influence but sound social hygiene should render difficult the acquisition of homosexual perversity, or what has been termed pseudo-homosexuality. It is the school which is naturally the chief theatre of immature and temporary homosexual manifestations, partly because school life largely coincides with the period during which the sexual impulse frequently tends to be undifferentiated and partly because in the traditions of large and old schools an artificial homosexuality is often deeply rooted. Homosexuality in English schools has already been briefly referred to in Chapter 3. As a precise and interesting picture of the phenomena in French schools, I may mention a story by Albert Nortal, Les Adolescents Passionnés, 1913, written immediately after the author left college, though not published until more than twenty-five years later, and clearly based on personal observation and experience. As regards German schools, see, for example, Moll, Untersuchungen über die Libido Sexualis, page 449 and following, and for sexual manifestations in early life generally, the same author's Sexual Life of the Child. Also, Hirschfeld, Jahrbuch für sexuelle Schüssenstufen, Volume 5, 1903, page 47 and further. And, for references, Hirschfeld, Die Homosexualität, page 46 and further. While much may be done by physical hygiene and other means to prevent the extension of homosexuality in schools, it is impossible, and even undesirable, to repress absolutely the emotional manifestations of sex in either boys or girls who have reached the age of puberty. It must always be remembered that profoundly rooted organic impulses cannot be effectually combated by direct methods. Writing of a period two centuries ago, Casanova, relating his early life as a seminarist trained to the priesthood, describes the precautions taken to prevent the youths entering each other's beds, and points out the folly of such precautions. As that master of the human heart remarks, such prohibitions intensify the very evil they are intended to prevent by invoking in its aid the impulse to disobedience natural to every child of Adam and Eve, and the observation has often been repeated by teachers since. We probably have to recognize that a way to render such manifestations wholesome, as well as to prepare for the relationships of later life, is the adoption, so far as possible, of the method of co-education of the sexes. Not, of course, necessarily involving identity of education for both sexes. 
since a certain amount of association between the sexes helps to preserve the healthiness of the sexual-emotional attitude. Association between the sexes will not, of course, prevent the development of congenital inversion. In this connection it is pointed out by Beth that it was precisely in Sparta and Lesbos, where homosexuality was most ideally cultivated, that the sexes, so far as we know, associated more freely than in any other Greek state. The question of the treatment of homosexuality must be approached with discrimination, caution, and scepticism. Nowadays we can have but little sympathy with those who, at all costs, are prepared to cure the invert. There is no sound method of cure in radical cases. At one time the seemingly very radical method of castration was advocated, and occasionally carried out, as in the case I have recorded in a previous chapter. History 26. Like all methods of treatment, it is sometimes believed to have been successful by those who carried it out. Usually, after a short period, it is found to be unsuccessful, and in some cases the condition, especially the mental condition, is rendered worse. It is not difficult to understand why this should be. Sexual inversion is not a localized genital condition. It is a diffused condition, and firmly imprinted on the whole psychic state. There may be reasons for castration, or the slighter operation of vasectomy, but, although sexual tension may be thereby diminished, no authority now believes that any such operation will affect the actual inversion. Castration of the body in adult age cannot be expected to produce castration of the mind. Moll, Ferry, Necke, Bloch, Rohleder, Hirschfeld are all either opposed to castration for inversion or very doubtful as to any beneficial results. In a case communicated to me by Dr. Schufeld, an invert had himself castrated at the age of twenty-six to diminish sexual desire, make himself more like a woman, and to stop growth of beard. But the only apparent physical effect, he wrote, quote, was to increase my weight ten percent and render me a semi-invalid for the rest of my life. After two years my sexuality decreased, but that may have been due to satiety or to advancing years. I was also rendered more easily irritated over trifles and more vengeful. Terrible criminal auto-suggestions came into my head, never experienced before. Ferré, Revue de Chirurgie, March 10, 1905, published the case of an invert of English origin who had been castrated. The inverted impulse remained unchanged, as well as sexual desire and the aptitude for erection but neurasthenic symptoms, which had existed before, were aggravated. He felt less capable to resist his impulses, became migratory in his habits of life, and addicted to the use of laudanum. In a case recorded by C. H. Hughes, alienist and neurologist, August 1914, the results were less unsatisfactory. In this case, the dorsal nerve of the penis was first excised, without any result. See also Alienist and Neurologist, February 1904, page 70, as regards worse than useless results of cutting the pudic nerve. And a year or so later the testes were removed, and the patient gained tranquillity and satisfaction. His homosexual inclinations appeared to go, and he began to show inclination for asexualized women, being specially anxious to meet with a woman whose ovaries had been removed on account of inversion. 
Reference may also be made to Necke, die ersten Kastrationen aus sozialen Gründen auf europäischen Boden. Neurologisches Zentralblatt, 1909, No. 5, and E. Wilhelm in Juristis Psychiatrische Grenzfragen, Volume 8, Heft 6 and 7, 1911. More trust has usually been placed in the psychotherapeutical and the surgical treatment of homosexuality. At one time, hypnotic suggestion was carried out very energetically on homosexual subjects. Kraft Ebbing seems to have been the first distinguished advocate of hypnotism for application to the homosexual. Dr. von Schrenk-Notzing displayed special zeal and persistency in this treatment. He undertook to treat even the most pronounced cases of inversion by courses lasting more than a year, and involving, in at least one case, nearly 150 hypnotic sittings. He prescribed frequent visits to the brothel, previous to which the patient took large doses of alcohol. By prolonged manipulations, a prostitute endeavoured to excite erection, a process attended with varying results. It appears that in some cases this course of treatment was attended by a certain sort of success, to which an unlimited goodwill on the part of the patient, it is needless to say, largely contributed. The treatment was, however, usually interrupted by continual backsliding to homosexual practices, and sometimes, naturally, the cure involved a venereal disorder. The patient was enabled to marry and to beget children. It is a method of treatment which seems to have found few imitators. This we need not regret. The histories I have recorded in previous chapters show that it is not uncommon for even a pronounced invert to be able sometimes to effect coitus. It often becomes easy if at the time he fixes his thoughts on images connected with his own sex. But the perversion remains unaffected. The subject is merely, as one of Moll's inverts expressed it, practicing masturbation per vaginum. Such treatment is a training in vice, and, as Rafalovich points out, the invert is simply perverted and brought down to the vicious level which necessarily accompanies perversity. There can be no doubt that in slight and superficial cases of homosexuality, suggestion may really exert an influence. We can scarcely expect it to exert such influence when the homosexual tendency is deeply rooted in an organic inborn temperament. In such cases, indeed, the subject may resist suggestion even when in the hypnotic state. This is pointed out by Moll, a great authority on hypnotism, and with much experience of its application to homosexuality, but never inclined to encourage an exaggerated notion of its efficacy in this field. Forel, who was also an authority on hypnotism, was equally doubtful as to its value in relation to inversion, especially in clearly inborn cases. Kraft Ebing at the end said little about it, and Necke, who was himself without faith in this method of treating inversion, stated that he had been informed by the last homosexual case treated by Kraft Ebing by hypnotism that, in spite of all goodwill on the patient's side, the treatment had been quite useless. Ferry also had no belief in the efficacy of suggestive treatment, nor has Mersbach, nor Rohleder. Numa Pretorius states that the homosexual subjects he is acquainted with, who had been so treated, were not cured, and Hirschfeld remarks that the inverts, so-called cured by hypnotism, were either not cured or not inverted. 
Mull has shown his doubts as to the wide applicability of suggestive therapeutics in homosexuality by developing in recent years what he terms association therapy. In nearly all perverse individuals, he points out, there is a bridge, more or less weak no doubt, which leads to the normal sexual life. By developing such links of association with normality, Moll believes, it may be possible to exert a healing influence on the homosexual. Thus, a man who is attracted to boys may be brought to love a boyish woman. Indications of this kind have long been observed and utilized, though not developed into a systematic method of treatment. In the case of bisexual individuals, or of a youthful subject whose homosexuality is not fully developed, it is probable that this method is beneficial. It is difficult to believe, however, that it possesses any marked influence on pronounced and developed cases of inversion. Somewhat the same aim as Moll's association therapy, though on the basis of a more elaborate theory, is sought by Freud's psychoanalytic method of treating homosexuality. For the psychoanalytic theory, to which reference was made in the previous chapter, the congenital element of inversion is a rare and usually unimportant factor. The chief part is played by perverse psychic mechanisms. It is the business of psychoanalysis to straighten these out, and from the bisexual constitution which is regarded as common to everyone, to bring into the foreground the heterosexual elements, and so to reconstruct a normal personality, developing new sexual ideals from the patient's own latent and subconscious nature. Sadger has especially occupied himself with the psychoanalytic treatment of homosexuality, and claims many successes. Sadger admits that there are many limits to the success of his treatment, and that it cannot affect the inborn factors of homosexuality when present. Other psychoanalysts are less sanguine as to the cure of inversion. Stekel appears to have stated that he has never seen a complete cure by psychoanalysis, and Ferenesi is not able to give a good account of the results, especially as regards what he terms obsessional homosexuality. He states that he has never succeeded in effecting a complete cure, although obsessions in general are especially amenable to psychoanalysis. I have met with at least two homosexual persons who had undergone psychoanalytic treatment and found it beneficial. One, however, was bisexual, so that the difficulties in the way of the success, granting it to be real, were not serious. In the other case, the inversion persisted after treatment, exactly the same as before. The benefit he received was due to the fact that he was enabled to understand himself better and to overcome some of his mental difficulties. The treatment, therefore, in his case, was not a method of cure, but of psychic hygiene, of what Hirschfeld would call adaptation therapy. There can be no doubt that, even if we put aside all effort at cure and regard an invert's condition as inborn and permanent, a large and important field of treatment here still remains. As we have seen in the two previous chapters, sexual inversion cannot be regarded as essentially an insane or psychopathic state. But it is frequently associated with nervous conditions which may be greatly benefited by hygiene and treatment, without any attempt at all to overcome a homosexual attitude which may be too deeply rooted to be changed. The invert is specially liable to suffer from a high degree of neurasthenia, often involving much nervous weakness and irritability, loss of self-control, and genital hyperesthesia. 
Hirschfeld finds that over 67% inverts suffer from nervous troubles, and among the cases dealt with in the present study, as shown in Chapter 5, slight nervous functional disturbances are very common. These are conditions which may be ameliorated, and they may be treated in much the same way as if no inversion existed, by physical and mental tonics, or, if necessary, sedatives, by regulated gymnastics and out-of-door exercises, and by occupations which employ, without over-exerting, the mind. Very great and permanent benefit may be obtained by a prolonged course of such mental and physical hygiene. The associated neurasthenic conditions may be largely removed with the morbid fears, suspicions, and irritabilities that are usually part of neurasthenia, and the invert may be brought into a fairly wholesome and tonic condition of self-control. The inversion is not thus removed, but if the patient is still young, and if the perversion does not appear to be deeply rooted in the organism, it is probable that, provided his own good will is aiding, general hygienic measures, together with removal to a favourable environment, may gradually lead to the development of the normal sexual impulse. If it fails to do so, it becomes necessary to exercise great caution in recommending stronger methods. Purely platonic association with the other sex, Moll points out, quote, leads to better results than any prescribed attempt at coitus. End quote. For even when such attempt is successful, it is not usually possible to regard the results with much satisfaction. Not only is the acquisition of the normal instinct by an invert very much on a level with the acquisition of a vice, but probably it seldom succeeds in eradicating the original inverted instinct. What usually happens is that the person becomes capable of experiencing both impulses, not a specially satisfactory state of things. It may be disastrous, especially if it leads to marriage, as it may do in an inverted man, or still more easily in an inverted woman. The apparent change does not turn out to be deep, and the invert's position is more unfortunate than his original position, both for himself and for his wife. It may be observed in the histories brought forward in Chapter 3 that the position of married inverts, we must of course put aside the bisexual, is usually more distressing than that of the unmarried. Among my cases, 14% are married. Hirschfeld finds that 16% of inverts are married, and 50% are impotent. He is unable to find a single cure of homosexuality, and seldom any improvement due to marriage. Nearly always the impulse remains unaffected. The invert's happiness is, however, often affected for the worse, and not least by the feeling that he is depriving his wife of happiness. An invert who had left his country through fear of arrest, and married a rich woman who was in love with him, said to Hirschfeld, Five years' imprisonment would not have been worse than one year of marriage. In a marriage of this kind, the homosexual partner and the normal partner, however ignorant of sexual matters, are both conscious, often with equal pain, that, even in the presence of affection and esteem and the best will in the world, there is something lacking. The instinctive and emotional element, which is the essence of sexual love and springs from the central core of organic personality, cannot voluntarily be created or even assumed. For the sake of the possible offspring also, marriage is to be avoided. It is sometimes entirely for the sake of children that the invert desires to marry. But it must be pointed out that homosexuality is undoubtedly in many cases inherited. 
Often, it is true, the children turn out fairly well, but, in many cases, they bear witness that they belong to a neurotic and failing stock. Hirschfeld goes so far as to say that it is always so, and concludes that from the eugenic standpoint, the marriage of a homosexual person is always very risky. In a large number of cases, such marriages prove sterile. The tendency to sexual inversion in eccentric and neurotic families seems merely to be nature's merciful method of winding up a concern which, from her point of view, has ceased to be profitable. As a rule, inverts have no desire to be different from what they are, and, if they have any desire for marriage, it is usually only momentary. Very pathetic appeals for help are, however, sometimes made. I may quote from a letter addressed to me by a gentleman who desired advice on this matter. Quote, in part, I write to you as a moralist, and, in part, as to a physician. Dr. Q has published a book in which, without discussion, hypnotic treatment of such cases was reported as successful. I am eager to know if your opinion remains what it was. This new assurance comes from a man whose moral firmness and delicacy are unquestionable, but you will easily imagine how one might shrink from the implantation of new impulses in the unconscious self, since newly created inclinations might disturb the conditions of life. At any rate, in my ignorance of hypnotism, I fear that the effort to give the normal instinct might lead to marriage without the assurance that the normal instinct would be stable. I write, therefore, to explain my present condition and crave your counsel. It is with the greatest reluctance that I reveal the closely guarded secret of my life. I have no other abnormality, and have not hitherto betrayed my abnormal instinct. I have never made any person the victim of passion. Moral and religious feelings were too powerful. I have found my reverence for other souls a perfect safeguard against any approach to impurity. I have never had sexual interest in women. Once I had a great friendship with a beautiful and noble woman, without any mixture of sexual feeling on my part. I was ignorant of my condition, and had the bitter regret of having caused in her a hopeless love, proudly and tragically concealed to her death. My friendships with men, younger men, have been coloured by passion, against which I have fought continually. The shame of this has made life a hell, and the horror of this abnormality, since I came to know it as such, has been an enemy to my religious faith. Here there could be no case of a divinely given instinct which I was to learn to use in a rational and chaste fashion under the control of spiritual loyalty. The power which gave me life seemed to insist on my doing that for which the same power would sting me with remorse. If there is no remedy, I must either cry out against the injustice of this life of torment between nature and conscience, or submit to the blind trust of baffled ignorance. If there is a remedy, life will not seem to be such an intolerable ordeal. I am not pleading that I must succumb to impulse. I do not doubt that a pure celibate life is possible so far as action is concerned. But I cannot discover that friendship with younger men can go on uncolored by a sensuous admixture which fills me with shame and loathing. The gratification of passion, normal or abnormal, is repulsive to aesthetic feeling. I am nearly forty-two, and I have always diverted myself from personal interests that threatened to become dangerous to me. More than a year ago, however, a new fate seemed to open to my unhappy and lonely life. I became intimate with a young man of twenty, of the rarest beauty of form and character, 
I am confident that he is and always has been pure. He lives an exalted moral and religious life, dominated by the idea that he and all men are partners of the divine nature, and able, in the strength of that nature, to be free from evil. I believe him to be normal. He shows pleasure in the society of attractive young women, and in an innocent, light-hearted way refers to the time when he may be able to marry. He is a general favourite, but turned to me as to a friend and teacher. He is poor, and it was possible for me to guarantee him a good education. I began to help him from the longings of a lonely life. I wanted a son and a friend in my inward desolation. I craved the companionship of this pure and happy nature. I felt such a reverence for him that I hoped to find the sensuous element in me purged away by his purity. I am, indeed, utterly incapable of doing him harm. I am not morally weak. Nevertheless, the sensuous element is there, and it poisons my happiness. He is ardently affectionate and demonstrative. He spends the summers with me in Europe, and the tenderness he feels for me has prompted him at times to embrace and kiss me, as he always has done to his father. Of late I have begun to fear that without will or desire I may injure the springs of feeling in him, especially if it is true that the homosexual tendency is latent in most men. The love he shows me is my joy, but a poisoned joy. It is the bread and wine of life to me, but I dare not think what his ardent affection might ripen into. I can go on fighting the battle of good and evil in my attachment to him, but I cannot define my duty to him. To shun him would be cruelty, and would belie his trust in human fidelity. Without my friendship he will not take my money, the condition of a large career. I might, indeed, explain to him what I explained to you, but the ordeal and shame are too great, and I cannot see what good it would do. If he has the capacity of homosexual feeling, he might be violently stimulated. If he is incapable of it, he would feel repulsion. Suppose, then, that I should seek hypnotic treatment. I still do not know what tricks an abnormal nature might play me when diverted by suggestion. I might lose the joy of this friendship without any compensation. I am afraid. I am afraid. Might I not be influenced to shun the only persons who inspire unselfish feeling? Bear with this account of my story. Many virtues are easy for me, and my life is spent in pursuits of culture. Alas, that all the culture with which I am credited, all the prayers and aspirations, all the strong will and heroic resolves, have not rid my nature of this evil bent. What I long for is the right to love, not for the mere physical gratification, for the right to take another into the arms of my heart and profess all the tenderness I feel, to find my joy in planning his career with him, as one who is rightfully and naturally entitled to do so. I crave this, since I cannot have a son. I leave the matter here. When I read what I have written, I see how pointless it is. It is possible, indeed, that brooding over my personal calamity magnifies in my mind the sense of danger to this friend through me, and that I only need to find the right relation of friendliness, coupled with aloofness, which will secure him against any too ardent attachment. Certainly I have no fear that I shall forget myself. Yet two things array themselves on the other side. I rebel inwardly against the necessity of isolating myself as if I were a pestilence, and I rebel against the taint of sensuous feeling. 
the normal man can feel that his instinct is no shame when the spirit is in control. I know that through the consciousness of others my instinct itself would be a shame and a baseness, and I have no tendency to construct a moral system for myself. I have, to be sure, moments when I declare to myself that I will have my sensuous gratification as well as other men, but the moment I think of the wickedness of it, the rebellion is soon over. The disesteem of self, the sense of taint, the necessity of withdrawing from happiness lest I communicate my taint, that is a spiritual malady which makes the ground-tone of my existence one of pain and melancholy. Should you have only some moral consolation without the promise of medical assistance, I should feel grateful. End, quote. End of chapter 7, part 1